Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for another episode of Wuxia Workshop. And tonight we're going to be talking about The Bride with White Hair 2. This is a 1993 film directed by David Wu. It's produced by Ronnie Yu, and it's uh, co-written by Ronnie Yu, who is the director of the first film, which is a classic, and we've talked about that here. We've talked about this movie on uh, Wuxia Weekend, but not on Wuxia Workshop, and this was Joel's first time seeing it. For those who haven't seen it, it it follows the the story of the the two main characters from the the first movie, uh, Ni Chung and and Yi Hong, and the aftermath of what would you call it? Their their really terrible breakup. Joel, is that a good way to to describe? Yeah, let's go with really yeah. terrible breakup. Okay, and so in this one, uh, Lian Ni Chung, played by Brigitte Lin, is the head of. And I'm just going to put it in very crude terms because I think that's the best way to describe it. it yeah. She's basically the head of a, a of a lesbian cult that hates men, right? Like that's kind of would you say that's a fair description? Of yeah, the... I, I think there's actually only one one uh, character in the whole cult that I would consider lesbian. I would consider them like the She-Ra Man Haters Club. Okay. It's more like these are a bunch of jilted ex lovers and, and women who've been treated wrong by men okay. who want gory like extrajudicial revenge okay all right i I feel like that's debatable because i feel like there was an undertone to the whole thing do you know what i mean but like i get what you're saying there really was only one overtly yeah there's one who like you make really quick you're like ah okay i got your number lady the rest of them I, i don't i don't know i don't think it was like overtly sexual it felt more like an inversion of gender roles more than it was a lesbian thing specifically Maybe I'm misreading some cultural cues there. Well, no, I think you're right. Like, I don't think, like, it wouldn't, okay, so we're kind of jumping into it quickly, but, like, (laughs) the, it wouldn't be framed, I think, in the terms that we would frame them now in our current culture. Like, it would, this was more like the character, like, the character that we're thinking of Mm. became a, a lesbian, not because she was a lesbian, but because she hated men so much. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was a different... Yeah, it's contextualized differently. Yeah, um, and so it was more like a rejection of the of the like you know just the order of the world that that they're sort of you know fighting against. Um, so yeah, so so anyways, but it's about the, this cult which is still trying to wipe out the remnants of Wu Dang and the and the and the eight clans. Uh, you know, all going back to the first movie. And in the meantime, the the Cho Yihang character is um, is is basically waiting on a mountain for a a, a, a a flower to bloom so he can bring it to Ni Chung and make her hair black again, right? Like that's like this. There's this flower that only blooms once. What is it? Once every ten years? Was that it? Or I, think, that I think it's once every ten years. Yeah. yeah, they they really do take it up from the very end of the last movie. Like it's very yeah. painful. Yeah, and and so. Uh, and so, 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 and and so, as that's all unfolding, the 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 you know the sort of new generation that's sort of growing up in the aftermath of this, uh, because this is like ten years later, they have to go and contend with the witch in her cult, and they do not succeed on the first attempt, and so they seek Ooh. out Cho Yi Hang, and then they have to go and uh, you know ultimately face her again, and in the end, Cho Yi Hang returns with the flower, and there's this massive confrontation that's probably one of the most operatic scenes in wuxia ever made beautifully um, shot yeah. too like they they set they're set on fire 
and for so, a while. <laughs> yeah, it like this scene. It runs the risk of being way over the top. It is way over the top, but it somehow works. It just comes together, yes. for, you know, very very nicely. So, uh, so what was your reaction to the movie, Joel? This was your first time seeing it. Is this your first yes. Wuxia sequel, or have you seen Wuxia sequels before? No, we did all the Brave Archers. Oh, okay, uh, all right. But that was a trilogy. That's a little different. It, true. But um, this might be my first, like, genuine Wuxia sequel, come to think of it. Uh, maybe not. I, I don't know. No, no, because we, um, uh, we did Golden Swallow. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah. Okay, so, no, we, okay, so, no, 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 I've done some sequels before. But, man, if I have to compare them, this sequel is tons better. Uh, it's, it's faithful to the original. It's a unique story that's set in the aftermath of it. Um, and it's, it's its own movie in its own right. It's so much its own movie that if I didn't know it was a sequel, I wouldn't suspect it was a sequel. It really is just this completely encapsulated, rich, and, and you know, completely told story. It's great. It's really good. Yeah, you, you could watch this um, without watching the first one, and I think you would understand it, and it would still resonate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first one definitely helps. Like you should, I, I definitely want to see the first one. Uh, I I would have felt poorer for not seeing the first one. The first one, you, you, I remember that review really well. That movie made an impression. I liked yeah. that movie quite a bit. Um, so I'm glad the sequel is good. And I'm also glad that the sequel isn't slavishly connected to the first one. It's just set in the same universe faithfully. Yeah. And by that I mean like. Um, this story is about a group of young and very not very weak characters who fail miserably and uh, a lot of them die horribly. Yeah. And they're really frustrated at their place in the previous story because they're almost like a cliff note to the, the giant operatic story that's sold in the first one, mm-hmm. which reaches its conclusion in this one. But in reaching its conclusion, it just tramples over these poor kids. Okay, I see and what you're saying. Yeah. You feel for them so much, especially Dynamite Guy, who is going to be my hero of this movie. Oh, really? That's interesting. That's an oh, interesting. Oh, Dynamite story. Guy, I love him so. Much. Well, I love why did you like Dynamite Guy so much? Magic Kung Fu. I've got a gun. Like I love those characters. The, I don't know why. I this, love the Icon Yeah, this has like a I don't know, kind of like a Dirty Dozen vibe to it, but in a Wuxia way, where where all. The, Again, I say this a lot, but it's the reason Wuxia... One of the reasons why Wuxia is so great is that they, they, you, you have these movies where you just see all of these different characters that inhabit this martial world, and it's thrilling to just... I don't know, just, just think of a, of a universe populated by these people, and when they get it right, they so get it right. And this movie oh, gets the balance of characters down really well. I would say more than the first one because the first one was really more focused on the two main leads, which was it, great. Um, I'm sorry. It, it's a uh, it's quality of a few characters, ver- like as far as like real depth and outlandishness. Yeah, because nothing compares to the twins in the first movie. In this yeah. movie, the twins but, is a high watermark for wacky ass characters. Yeah. But every character is likable in this movie, and I I genuinely felt upset whenever some of them died. Yeah. And I think, and again, I would, I, I would say I favor the first movie over this one. I think it's tighter. I think it's, it's, it's more of a perfect film, but I think they're both yeah. really good. And I think this one's really entertaining and it, it kind of frees itself up kind of like you're saying, like it focuses, it, it tramples over these characters, but by focusing on them, it does free itself up to be another kind of movie. Do you know what I mean? It does, yeah. it doesn't have to do 
it's like another movie within the span of the first movie because like you say it sort of it sort of falls over this story like a canopy do you know what i mean it does but, yes uh, and it bookends it really nicely too because we we get to see the direct aftermath of of both of the leads in the last one we get to see we get to see the the guy on the mountaintop and man he looks miserable yeah um oh that's a good way to open this movie and then it, it leads it like the dialogue is the connection between them because everyone's talking about him as this distant lost uncle uh, while our our lead in this one is getting married, trying to do some political arrangements there, because he's like, well, isn't he like the last of the Wudang or something like that? And he has no heir. And so everyone's like, uh-oh. Well, and, and I think the other cool thing about that is that it's still Leslie Chung. Like, Leslie Chung has a small role in this film. He just sits on the mountain for most of the movie, and then he shows up at the end. So it, 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 it almost feels like he's just getting like a, you know, he's showing up for a paycheck, right? Like, that's kind of the, like, like that's sort of the effect. <laughs> But at least he's there. Do you know what I mean? They, they, at least they got him back in the movie. And I feel like it was actually, even it's if... It's a powerhouse when he's on screen. Like, yeah. I didn't... Because he looms over the movie. The the kind of promise of him is the promise of hope in the movie. And like he's yeah. in the whole thing in that regard. And I think, no, and I think that's actually good for the film. And I don't know if, I don't know if they did it because that's the film they wanted or if they did it because that's the film they had to have because they couldn't get him for the whole thing. But it actually works out kind of better in the end either way because it has that effect of he's looming over the movie and then when he shows up, it's so much more powerful because you are sort of forced to feel Lian Nichung's sense of his absence. Do you know what I mean? The sen- you yeah. know, And so it, it just makes that scene super powerful and they have so much chemistry and then just as like they, they work together really well and she's really good at going from being what's the word like just demonic and resentful yeah. to tender do you know what i mean like she can shift right back into tender with him and like on a dime and and, yeah, it, and that scene is an amazing climax to these two movies yeah like it, it's really amazingly well acted yeah and it's uh, really moving too i think i think it's one of the more moving wuxia endings that that, I, that that's out there um, I might, I might have squirted a little. I might, yeah. I might have teared up. I yeah, might have. I don't think you should use the word squirt for tears. I think that's. Uh... It's so much funnier to use the word squirt. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know. It just feels wrong. It just feels wrong. Um, <laughs> but no, but no, it is moving. It's very moving, and and I think, uh, and again, there's like we said, it's it, it's it's if you just describe it, it's over the top. The place is literally burning down. There is fire. There is. You know, carnage. Everybody is getting killed. You know, like she everybody impales him with her killed. hair. What was that? Everybody is yeah. getting killed. Yeah, this this is like Shakespearean tragedy level ending. Like, like, it, like. Let's uh, let's walk through a, the beats. Like every every one of of the of the uh, characters that are part of the troupe, except for the the main lead and and his wife, get slaughtered. Right? They all die in some manner leading up to this yeah i think think that's right yeah and and so and then he almost dies and most of his body gets burned right and Mm -hmm. and then and then uh lian nichung impales um impales uh choi hung when she it's it's almost as if she's attacking him thinking he's going to block and he doesn't it's one of those kind of things 
right? Yeah, and he just lets that stuff just stab right into him. And and he's just skipping ahead to the amazing climax, though. And we know we know how nasty that hair is because we saw it kill Moon earlier in the movie, right? Or we saw it wound her. She was such a fun character. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Well, we let's let's bookmark that because I want to talk about her. uh, separately. Moon deserves some interesting. I do want to talk about Moon. I liked her quite a bit. She was she was fun. But but just to kind of walk through the the the, the big climactic death scene. Uh, oh yeah. So she she impales him, and then the the other I can't remember her name, but the the one that that is like the only lesbian in the movie. I think it was it was it Chen. Was that was that her name? It's it's something very simple. Yeah. The the girl who had this kind of like poisonous love for the bride with white hair. Um, it was almost like a love based on hate. It was really unusual. And well, uh, she's resentful of the fact that the bride still has feelings for uh, the guy that betrayed her. Well, and she's she's the the like the I don't know if she's the wife or like the uh, the mistress of of the general from the first movie who betrayed uh, you know the, the dynasty by working with the Qing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but but so so she she ends up stabbing Liani Chung, and then Liani Chung, you know, just bashes her in the chest and she goes flying presumably killed. Yeah. Um, no one is a match for the bride with no. white hair she she is a, a monster in this movie and she's super fun to watch she she's really powerful in this one and like she doesn't even have to do anything she just like looks at you and you die you know it's like that it, kind of... there, there's that scene where the the dirty dozen as you term them finally confront her and they're like finally we can have our vengeance it's legit she looks at them and they start blown backward yeah. by the force of her chi and you realize just how doomed they always were and it's this real like heart-wrenching moment because they're like oh i really like these characters and I have, they're probably all gonna die in this scene they do and it's so great too because that's like brigitte Lynn's like like in the first one all she like i don't think she actually has a power quite like that in the first movie i could be wrong but we see a lot of scenes where she gives somebody the death stare and it has this effect and so i like that they really played that up in that scene because that that stare that she does is so is so effective in the previous movie and so and now it's like a a martial ability but but i, I don't know, but but all we're left with at the end are the you know the the new couple you know the the bride and the groom from the beginning of the movie and uh, if you think about it they're they're uh their marriage being interrupted is what kickstarted the whole movie. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see that they actually, not really a happy ending, but they at least get to get married. That's nice. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I, 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 I really like the ending. I like the, the plot, uh, but we should talk about the characters too. And I think you really wanted to talk about moon. So why don't we, why don't we start with her? Cause she is a really cool character. She, she is. And I, the, the more I think about it, the more I, I like how appropriately she slots into the movie. Because a lot of the bad guys, like, part of the way they're evil manifest is that, like I said, that inversion of gender roles and expectations. Like, they have a lot of male slaves and courtesans and concubines that they're, like, murdering and torturing. So, like, th- there is clearly an inversion of gender roles going on there. And Moon is a tomboy, but yeah. she's a good guy. And, like... I like that. I like her as a balance for that the kind of uh, that kind of gender inversion. It, it it plays with it a lot. It's it's clever and like the actress is really really charismatic. I really enjoyed yeah. watching her uh, do stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. She she was she was great. Um, she was uh, the the um, and I think let me see the, the actress's name is Christy Chung. Um, but 
but she, she 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 had a lot of charisma, and also I like the um, I like the way that oh go ahead go ahead. They had like a love triangle with her too, which was fun. Yeah, and and she was kind of the one. She was sort of the odd person out, and but but I th- I thought what was what was interesting about her as well is that when they go and they attack the cult, and I I don't I kind of want to know how you feel about this overall because it's something that you see over the course of the movie even after she dies. But she, she, we keep seeing things from her perspective, right? When when they go in and attack, and she keeps observing a lot of the men, not just killing these women that are part of the cult, but really kind of losing their shit as they do it. Do you know what I mean like 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 yeah, getting kind of like that too? Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not sure what we were supposed to be seeing there. Like maybe we're supposed to see the kind of the justification of why women would go like go on these like vengeance tirades because. This is kind of the treatment they've they've experienced. Like we see a lot of flashbacks of the quote unquote evil women, and like uh, like I don't want to be that guy, but like they got treated pretty bad by these dudes. So yeah, like, no, they, they were treated pretty awfully, and and also I think the um I I think that that's kind of the point of that that it you know the, the, it, it, it it's not it, it, it's not it's not like justifying everything that uh, Lian Ni Chung is doing, but it but it is it is sort of presenting the like okay when you like remember the scene with the the two flautists or I think it was a flautist and a and a and a guchin player or something but there's two yeah, musicians yeah, something like that yeah there are two musicians and they're basically telling the musicians to they're kind of tormenting them like she's like play this song no play this song no play that they're kind of, and and the men are so enraged that these women are doing it to them in this way that they that they they start talking back and then they kill them right and so well, they kill one of them the other one's like oh yeah I think they kill him too person. though eventually I think he ends up getting Did killed they kill him too? I, think I, th- I, th- I don't think either of those guys make it out of the scene alive but I could be wrong um, yeah they were they weren't very good musicians but but the thing is the um uh the Chen character. She used to be, I think she used to be like a courtesan or like a sing-song girl of some kind. And so like, you know, she says, I used to be a musician too. And I, I, you know, like I never complained. Do you know what I mean? And so. Yeah. And like they're getting, these guys are giving these women attitude full well knowing that their lives are hanging in the balance. Yeah, exactly. And you get the female perspective a lot in this. I think that that's one of the reasons we see stuff from Moon's perspective, literally. We're literally getting the female perspective on it. Yeah. And you do have a sympathy for them. You're like, wow, they're really being treated like crap. I I can see why they're so frustrated. And and they don't quite follow through with it. I don't know if they really need to, because I think they're just trying to establish that there's like a grain, there's like a grain of truth to what this cult is sort of talking about. Yeah. Um, It's it's pathos. It's not justification. It's, It's simply pathos. And I, yeah. that's rewarding to see in this movie. And but even after Moon dies, you still kind of see it when Green takes out the crazy sword lady, right? Like he really kind of goes like, <clears throat> and he, and he's got his reasons, right? Like a lot of terror, like you know, she killed Moon. There's a lot of things, but like he really, you know, he he his behavior seems kind of similar to these other characters that Moon was observing on the initial raid in, right? So it still kind of echoes through the film, I think. But um, the real heroes of this are the ones who are really gentlemanly, like in that kind of Confucian way, where like in like you were talking about the last scene where uh, where the bride with white hair attacks her paramour and he doesn't block. He just lets the the knife hair stab into him and he just gently presents the flower like that's that's presented as this like noble act of heroism and self-sacrifice. Yeah. And 
like the love triangle with Moon is because she's in in love with the 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 other Wudang guy who was is engaged. I guess he's married to uh to his lady love, and like it's shown that like that kind of like real chivalry is almost a threat to the very like ideals of the the, the all lady vengeance cult. Like that's one of the reasons like he's targeted by her at all is just that she sees like something that's actually kind of noble and reminds her of, of her own past. And she's like, Nope, it's all a lie. Hey, I'm going to show you how bad you really are. Cause all men are pigs. And the heroism of the men in the movie is proving that wrong through real heroism, through, through real chivalry. That's really sophisticated and neat. And it was fun to watch. No, I, I, I agree with that. And, um, I also want to. What, what do you think of the uh, of the Chen character? I should say too, she's a historical figure. Uh, she she was she was like the real life concubine of the general that was also a historical figure. Um, you know, we, a lot of these other characters obviously are not historical, but it's kind of interesting that we have these historical personalities. Yeah, that's always fun about uh, Wuxia movies. They'll they'll always throw in like a little dash of history to them, which is kind of fun. Kind it's of like a pillar. Later. It's like a pillar that kind of sets it in you know reality. Yeah. It's kind of like it reminds me of watching like um, what was it Tombstone where it had like some real life historical stuff kind of dashed in there and like obviously that's not actually how it manifested but like it gives it something you know there's something you can grab onto it's kind of satisfying. Well, and the way they do it in these movies is they make them into real characters too. So it's not like it's not like oh Mark Twain is showing up and he's just going to walk through the film and walk out unscathed. Hi everyone. Yeah. No, they're real characters that are involved in the plot. Do you know what I mean? So. Uh, sometimes pivotally. So, uh, but I don't know. What, what, how'd you feel about her as a as a character in the film? Uh, she, like you said, she had a real Shakespearean vibe. Like I really felt like uh, that's almost a character you could have just put like directly into a Shakespeare play, and she'd be right at home. You know, she's got like a, a forbidden and really kind of like wretched love for someone that's based on hate. And she she's like the the person who holds the knife to them at the very last scene and like I, I really liked her um, she she was a she was a good uh, she was a good bad guy yeah I, no I thought I thought she I thought she was fabulous uh, and I and I and I think I think it was uh, I don't know it was it, I, I again this was ninety three so I feel like this was a period where there was a lot of movies that kind of did that sort of thing where they would sort of have, they would sort of bring in like the sort of the 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 lesbian storyline because at the time it was considered titillating or whatever but yeah I think, titillating or taboo a lot yeah. of people a, a lot of stuff around the world dipped their toe into it around that point i remember like i, cause I, I remember living through that like i'm old enough that i remember 93 mm-hmm. and like whatever a gay character got to be openly gay that was a huge deal people were like oh mm-hmm. i don't know how to feel about that um, well, you know what's so, funny? Yeah. There were the, the stuff like that was going on before too. Like in the seventies, they had a lot, they had movies like that. But 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 there was like I think with Basic Instinct maybe. But that was probably was that like the first one that kind of that uh, that was a that was a landmark one. Yeah. Uh, there, there were a few like Basic Instinct that came out that everyone talked about a yeah. lot for a while. Um, so yeah, but uh, but so it was kind of you know it's kind of like that. But but I feel like this is a movie where that was really a needed ingredient for this cult to to kind of work do you know what i mean you kind of needed that aspect of it to to i don't know it's just like an obvious feature that it would have right do you know what i mean because that's sort of like where some of this philosophy seems to kind of lead and that's where it leads this character 
So I thought that's that. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about that particular thing is that it is specific to that one character. It's not like they're just generally lesbians just to titillate people. They are naked a lot, so there is that. Well, there's one. Like, wait, there's just one nude scene, isn't there? Or is there? I there were two. Okay, I, I, I mean, there's at least two that I remember. But you know what? I think that is. I think that's the sequel rule. I think because in the first one we had the scene with the remember the, the the guy who changes to a woman and we see the bare breasts. And in this one, we get like two women with bare breasts, right? And so, no, but they also have that scene where they make out in the underground underwater grotto thing in the first one, and isn't? Uh, but there's no is real she... nudity in that scene. That's like no, the... she's totally topless, isn't she? I don't remember. But you can't see anything. You don't. You don't actually that, see. That wasn't the important part of that scene, but I seem to remember topless. You you do I, not I no it. you do not see Brigitte Lynn naked in the first okay. movie. I swear I, I to will, you, I'm gonna rewatch that. It's on Prime. I'm gonna rewatch it. I'm just I, gonna rewatch that scene. I'm a, I'm a, I'm like ninety nine point nine percent sure you don't see. It. I mean, like, that it's one of those scenes where like the actors are supposed to be presented in a way where you can tell that they're supposed to be naked, but you don't actually see the actors' bodies. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm pretty sure it's that kind of a scene. Um, Fair enough. We're we're gonna see you later on. I mean, I but that was off. also a flashback scene in this movie, um, right? So. I don't know, but but either way, I feel like... How much I loved that shape-changing scene, by the way. That, that's a really like cool a scene. That that was a really cool scene for, you know, because it kind of... It, it's a good segue it, into It's like a sex magic scene, right? Character. What was that? Yeah. It's a good segue into the weirdness of the twins character. It's before you really know about him or them. <laughs> well, and we, we don't really quite have equals to the twins. We do have the crazy sword woman. Um, I don't know what you thought of her. She's kind of all eyeballs, is how I feel her character is uh, uh, portrayed. Yeah, I, I mean, like you can't hold a candle to the twins. Mm. Almost nothing. Can, I mean, in all of the movies we've seen, very little compares to them. Well, they, uh, they were bizarre. They were bizarre, and they were a really interesting visual, just the way that they were presented. They were, and and like the voice was really good, and like their presence in the movie was good, and their outfit was good. Like, there's, they're almost like a Final Fantasy villain. They're like this whole other tier of Gonzo villain. So it's it's not really fair to compare anything in any movie to them, because they really are in a league of their own. What did you think of the Granny character? Oh, I love Granny. I love Granny because we, we kept getting more female perspective from her, you know? Yeah. Like, she had her own story to tell. She was her own fully fleshed out character. And she wasn't, like, she wasn't just, like, martially very capable there was a lot to her, you know. She was like strategic, and she was fun, and she was very personable. And I, I like the actress quite a bit. Like this is she's very charming. Yeah, but the actress was incredibly charming who played her. I, I loved her introductory scene where she where she 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 approaches the camp and they think she's the white haired witch because she's got gray hair and they and they immediately fire arrows at her. Yeah, and they, moon shoots and, three arrows. Does she catch him in her teeth? Yeah, but they but the force knocks her to the ground still. So it's just a really great slapstick scene. The, I remember I remember that. And I remember the moment she pulled them out and dropped them on the ground, I out loud said the words, I'm sold on the granny character. Okay. And I was from that moment forward, I was in love. Yeah, this yeah. this movie has more fun, I think, than the first movie. There's a little bit more humor. In it, even though in a lot of ways it's darker. Do you know what I mean? But it is darker. But, but it, the it's okay. like higher and lower, you know. Yeah. More, yeah. There's a there's a broader range of tone. The first movie 
really keeps its tone pretty tight, which works well for the first movie. It does. This movie opens it up a lot so that you have a lot of humor, you have a lot of darkness, you have a lot of action, you have a lot of crazy things that just come out of left field, like the bombs and, you know, like there's, it's just very, it's a very open-minded wuxia movie, right? Whereas the first one, the first one is crazy in a lot of ways, but it's a little bit more closed-minded because it has to be because it's trying to tell a particular kind of story, right? And it's trying yeah, to establish a certain mood. Uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting it's to have more, that contrast. It's so more tame. It's weird. What was <laughs> because that? its characters are definitely more gonzo in their powers, and the situation is, is weirder. Um, but, like, you're right. Like, totally, it's actually kind of restricted and tame. Not to its detriment. It's focused. But, like, but yeah, it, that's one of the interesting ways these movies differentiate each other yeah. without ever really, like, getting so far away from the thing that makes the, either of them appealing that they really feel, like, totally uh, dissonant. It, yeah. They're really great. I, I need to watch them back-to-back at some point because, like... It's it's good. It's good to watch them back. I I, that's, um, I believe that's how we did it on Wuxia Weekend because I think we put them together somehow. Like, I, I remember watching them really closely together at certain point and 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 I, I feel like it holds up quite well and and I think and again I, I think the thing that really makes the, I mean obviously the first movie Leslie Chung and Bridget Lin together are the things that really make that movie work as well as the twins because the twins are just the best villain ever this movie is really held together by Bridget Lin right she's the she's like the glue that holds this film together I think um and 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 so and 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 it's and and it's more a because in the first film it's called the bride with white hair but we don't really get to see the bride with white hair except for like the yeah, last she's five in minutes. it for all of 30 seconds yeah because yeah. because she doesn't become the bride with white hair until the end it's really an origin story the first it's movie. like if this movie was called the man with the magic flower yeah 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 exactly <laughs> it's it, that's exactly what it would be like and so this movie we really get to see the bride with white hair which is is probably the thing that you're craving at the end of the first movie, right? So, I wanted to see more of her, and this movie didn't disappoint. Yeah. Like, she's in the whole movie. She's the main bad guy. She's super powerful. She kills so many people, Yeah. which maybe I shouldn't, like, be joyous in watching her slaughter, like, good or innocent people. But, man, I got, like, I grew up on Mortal Kombat, dude. I love the bloodbaths. No, it's, uh, um... Well, I I think uh, I, I just the the in the first movie we knew about her hair ability, right? Like the, like yeah. you see her use it, but I don't. I think until you see her use it on Moon in this movie, you don't get how horrific it would be, right? Like because like the she they cut the strands off that attack Moon, and like a scene later, they're still sticking out of her, and like they. Like they can't even get them out. <laughs> it's it's really horrific and and kind of gut wrenching, especially since you're in love with Moon at this point. If you're any kind of person, like Moon's character totally endeared herself to you. What what did you um what did you think of Moon's death scene? By the way, uh, it was heroic and heartbreaking, and uh, might have squirted again just a little bit. Please, please don't say squirt for two. <laughs> say, say you cried. I want people. I don't want people to be confused about what's going on when you're watching this movie. Um, I can be confused about my eye socket. I don't need to explain to you why people might interpret that the wrong way. Um, 
I'm only saying it because it bothers you. Also, that's how my grandfather would always say it. He would never admit to crying. So he would say that. I mean, I'm sure your grandfather was a lovely man, but I'm just going to say that's a lot worse than admitting that you cried. <laughs> my, so. my grandfather was somewhere between uh, a, a Nordic giant and a living potato. He was an unusual character. He's a very large man who moved uh, who moved freight for a living. You know what's funny? That's like a very odd mental image for my head to juggle and then reconcile into a human being. Um, yeah, a Nordic giant and a potato. Um, but it reminds me of something relevant to this movie. As I was watching it, I was like, you know, there really hasn't been a more perfect film for the Dio song Last in Line than this film. I think that, you know... I don't know if you maybe you're not familiar with the movie, but you know, like the, the the opening line is it's not the opening line, but one of the big lines at the beginning is "We're off to the witch," right? We're off, we're off to fight the witch, and so it just I don't know. It, it, I I just kept thinking of "Last in Line" when I was watching it this time. I don't know, are they evil or divine? They're last in line. <laughs> but, yeah. Dio so man. okay, so you're familiar. Um, kind of a kind of a Dio fan. Not gonna lie to you. So, but but do you know what I'm talking about? Do you think you could set this to a music? Like, do you think that you could upload you a, think you could a Wizard of Oz this to well, a Dio album? Well, could you make like a music video, like with clips of the movie, and I mean, the last easily. in line? Easily, I mean, well, I mean, to be fair, like Dio sort of lends himself to doing that. Almost any one of his songs, you could take a movie of appropriate awesomeness like this yeah. one and and cut together a really good video. What I'm interested in now is if I just like put on the album that Last in Line is on, does it sync up a la uh, uh, Wizard of Oz and the, the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album? Does it do that with this one? I'm curious now. I don't think so because you're going to have to get like, what's the song? I Speed at Night? Like how is that going to make any kind of sense? In what movie? night scenes? I don't know. Um <laughs> And then what is it? One night in the city. I don't think we even get a city in the movie, right? Um, Maybe and then Egypt. How is Egypt going to work, Joel? How are you going to get Egypt into the into the mix? <laughs> I think. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to. We'll, here's what we'll do. You said you're going to rewatch. Wait, I don't. I don't think the album's long enough to. Um, I don't know. Like, I, there's so many variables I need to actually look at. So we'll see. But but the important thing is I think we could cobble together clips of the movie to last in line and it would uh, I think I think it would be I think it would be kind of nice. Do you know what I mean? Speaking, speaking of that, uh, you know I was introduced to Dio in an unusual way back when I was a teenager. I was really into the the anime AMVs they would do where they would like recut like old old song not really old songs but like popular popular songs like that to just random clips of anime. And uh, I saw one that starred my my boy Vampire Hunter D. Um, and it was uh, cut to. Um, it wasn't Rainbow in the Dark. It was. It was one of the. It was. It was a Dio song. I forget which one it was. Um, was it Holy Diver? Uh, or was it? Uh... No, it wasn't Holy Diver. It was the. Let's see, Fever Don't talk Dreams. To strangers, huh? Fever Dreams. Is that is that one? It must be Fever Dreams on the inside. That one. It's is that what it's called, or is there a? Is... I'll I'll find out. Hold on one second. Um, okay. Keep talking. I think it's all fever dreams. Anyway, like I, I never heard Dio sing before ever. I never heard anybody Dio. My mom wasn't a fan, so I was, I didn't. She didn't have any vinyl of him, which is weird when you think about it. Cause she liked a lot of hair metal, uh, but no Dio. So uh, that's the well, first Dio, time I heard Dio was not hair me- hair metal. 
Um, no, I don't think so. I, I was like, he's got that like high operatic like pitch, and like I always associate that with hair metal. And no, no, Dio, Dio is not hair. No, that's like the most horrifically wrong thing you could ever say about Ronnie James Dio. Cool. Dio. I'm no, I'm wrong out loud. no, 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 no. I don't mean it. I don't mean it in the insulting way, George. I just mean Fine. what he was I... doing was um, was like number one. He he was around before hair metal was even a thing, right? Mm. He he sort of dipped his toe into some of that sound that was prevalent in the eighties, but like he was still, you know, he, he, I, I always kind of. And I don't know the history as well as you do, obviously. You truly are the master of metal. Uh, but I always kind of envision him in my dim understanding as kind of like Ozzy Osbourne, and that he's kind of a trim setter and not really a guy that was a trim follower. Um, I don't know if that's even a fair comparison. I know Ozzy was kind of like one of a kind, so. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think I think that's a whole other discussion. We, we want to get back to the bride with white hair. But before we do, I just want to say, yeah, it's Fever Dreams is the name of the song, and... Thank you. Um, I knew that was a. I knew that was a thing. But yeah, Fever Dreams, first song I ever heard from Dio, and it was exactly just a bunch of clips of this anime that I loved with that song going, and it was like perfect. So I have a lot of faith that you could cut anything of appropriate awesomeness into a really good AMV with Dio music going. And and uh, and and so, uh, but also, yeah, I think he was a trendsetter because he he was responsible, uh, you know, for things like you know Rainbow. Which 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 carved a lot of interesting ground. He was responsible for helping to like light another fire under Black Sabbath, right? Like when they put out Heaven and Hell, you know, it's amazing that the band was able to sort of you know go on with another singer and to get another sound that late in their career. And then he had his own you know success with his solo career, and he influenced so many people, right, with his vocal his vocal style. So. I think yeah, he's um, yeah. got a very unique vocal but, stuff that's really fun to listen to. But we do have to make clear he was not hair metal. There, there's nothing hair metal okay. about Ronnie James Dio. Um, I, I will, I will take your word for it. I, I don't know. What I'm that... sure. I'm, I'm sure there are people who will make that argument because he was going like there was a certain sort of, there was like a kind of metal in the late '80s that sort of had like a hard rock vibe and a heavy metal vibe do you know what I mean he was kind of in that zone but he was not getting anywhere near bands like poison or any of that kind of stuff do you no know I mean? no like rat and guys like yeah. that that's I, hair metal do you know what i mean like that's that's what hair metal is so, 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 so does hair metal kind of connote that more like poppy kind of metal that's yeah it's just it's just all stuff. style and no substance J- okay, ronnie james okay. dio had style but he had so much substance, you know. You could, you could not, yeah, you could not accuse him of being without substance. His stuff. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say that of like Rat, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Rat's fine. You can listen to Rat and like Rat. I think I feel like James Dio used the minimal amount of hairspray you had to use to be in metal at the time, right? And <laughs> and Rat and Poison, they just used uh, too much. Do you know what I'm saying? It's at the upward limit of yeah. how much could use. Yeah. 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 Like, I, I, I get that. And he also wasn't uh, doing the thing with mascara and, and like facial. I thought that was makeup. more of a kiss thing. Like that was more of their legacy with the whole. No, like, but like all the, all those hand, all those like ham, uh, hair and glam metal bands. Like if you look at like, uh, I remember Poison had an album where they're just in full, like, like not makeup, like kiss makeup, but like, 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 like female makeup. Do you know what I mean? They have like lipstick on and eyeshadow and all that stuff, and that's, it's kind of like, 
what the hair metals band seemed to be doing was sort of like what Twisted Sister was doing, but serious. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Twisted Sister was like, these are four ugly guys dressed up as women, and they're the ugliest women you've ever seen. And like Twisted Sister. Well, I, I that, don't know if like they're a popular band or anything. I know I know they were kind of famous with the whole "we're not going to take it" thing, but I, I really liked them. Like their whole attitude was fun. Well, so. and also D. Snyder's like a really charismatic, uh, you know, you know, just figure in 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 the history of that kind of music. But um, but I think. But I think I think that, you know, the bland bands, they're kind of doing that, but they're doing it more seriously so that it's like it's really just kind of part of the look. Do you know what I mean? It's just that's just sort of how they I get that. So I'm now walking away from this conversation with a a greater and more nuanced understanding of metal. Thank you again, (laughs) Metal Master. I don't think it's. Trust me, there are people that know a lot. You know, I, I I should have you know known you know Fever Dreams off the off the bat. Um, I only knew it was my introduction to Dio. Well, so. and it's a later Dio song. It's not like it's a you know like like I'm not as big a fan of the later stuff with with someone like Dio as the early stuff. I think I think I think that's from like 2000 or 2003 or something like that. Oh, really? I think so. Recent? I think I think it's pretty recent. I could be wrong, but I think so. That's crazy recent. Um, uh, so, so, but anyways, back to the bride with white hair too. Um, yeah. So we probably want to. Uh, well, are there any other characters we want to talk about before we move into other things? No, I, I think we pretty much covered all all the really important ones. Again, I want to give a little shout out to my boy Dynamite Man, uh, who whose kung fu consisted of putting dynamite in people's belts, lighting it, and running away until his heroic moment when he put it in his own belt. To allow his friends to run away. That's and it. He was a really fun character. What would you do in terms of game ability with this? <sighs> Man, I gotta tell you, I'm at a, I'm in a design snag with Tian Shang where I'm really like rubbing my chin about guy with explosives, mm-hmm. you know, because like with with kung fu games, I find that they actually eventually all follow a pretty simple formula of you have like a base character and then you have powers which are special technique that does a thing, kind of similar to Vancy and magic in D and D, and like kind of wed to that, you know, because that's how kung fu works. You learn your special name techniques, and you can fight you know competently without them, but those are like your your secret ingredient in, in what makes it cross the line from like monk in D and D to straight up we're all where everybody is kung fu fighting, yeah, and uh, and so those systems don't lend themselves very naturally to a stick of dynamite or a hand grenade or anything like that. Uh, so in the post-apocalyptic stuff of Lone Wolf Fist, and in, eventually in All Above Heaven too, where we're gonna have giant laser cannons and such, I, I'm I'm not I don't want to say that I'm struggling with those things, but I'm struggling to to find a place for them that I find satisfying, you know. Because uh, on the one hand, they should be reasonably effective because it's dynamite. Yeah. On the other hand, it's sort of boring. Like, I know that technically, like, the Shoryuken Fire Punch is less destructive than a stick of dynamite. Mm-hmm. But it should be something that you want more as a player. And making certain that you have a place for both in your system is so, tough. So here's, what I, here's my argument for, for weaponry in Wuxia. Number one, unique weaponry is a feature of the genre, right? And a feature oh, yeah. of the Kung Fu genre. So I think you have to have it, and I think you have to treat weapons kind of the way you treat kung fu techniques, right? Like, because uh, a lot of times in these movies, 
once people get hold of the ultimate weapon, that gives them tremendous power. So I think it's fair to to have a stick of dynamite, to have, you know, whatever, you know, like she had a really cool arrow type thing she was using. Uh, you know, the flying guillotine from the flying guillotine movies. I, th- I think it can work. What I think you have to do, though, is you have to make the weapon have... Like the dynamite's tricky, but like the like like look at the movie The Flying Guillotine, right? Uh, the Flying Guillotine, it it's 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 one of the most powerful weapons you can use. Once it lands on somebody's head, it's pretty much game over for them, right? You pull the head right off. But the the sort of central problem of the Flying Guillotine is the amount of training you have to do just to master. It. Do you know what I mean? It's it's really hard to wield effectively. So oh, yeah, I, you got to be like three feet. Speaking of trip attack. Yeah, but but you know what I'm saying. Like you have like you have to train. Like the whole movie is spent training a team to use these things, right? Like that's the whole. Like that's how difficult it is to master. Um, so when I put a flying guillotine in Ogre Gate, the way I did it was, I had it be a requirement that you had to like, like you had to spend, you know, time just getting to master this weapon. Do you know what I mean? Like that that was the big hurdle. And even then, it still is kind of gonna give you a little bit of a penalty do you know what i mean so i think you could take a similar approach with dynamite if you want dynamite to have the wow effect it has in this movie you can have it be un a little difficult to wield do you know what i'm saying um and then i think it would balance out but it would also kind of match the reality of you know this guy's fighting with dynamite like that's pretty dangerous yeah you know people People don't actually do that, really. It's not, like, strategically advisable, because there's, there's kind of two elements to fighting and, and making fighting look a thing you do. Uh, and the most basic one is not dying. Yeah. And then after that, it's killing the opponent. But, like, that killing the opponent thing is way less important than not dying in most yeah. cases. So walking into battle that explosive is a bad idea. It really is violating the cardinal rule. Um, yeah. So so I think if you get if you gave it a chaotic element of some kind that could work. If you gave it a risk of blowing yourself up that could work. If you gave it a penalty just cuz it's just hard to like lob a stick of dynamite accurately. Yeah. And um and and when you do that what you're really doing is you're putting it in the same exact balance scales every weapon and technique and attack you can otherwise choose and you're saying okay now dynamite is slow and ineffective, but when it does work, it's explosive and very destructive. Yeah. Therefore, you get to tactically weigh that against something faster and more reliable and safer, like the Shadouken Fire Punch, and you can tell me which one your character wants to deal with. And I can put whichever one I want in a game, and the bad guys love different strategies depending on which one they choose. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the, that is a deep wisdom, Brendan, that I, that I sip from. You were very wise tonight. We should do more of these at night when you're yeah. with the manifest. I, I think when you listen to this in the morning, you're going to regret that remark because you'll see that I've not been that wise. And it's just the effect of the late night. But I should mention, yeah, we're recording this at like midnight. So this is a much, the, the vibe is probably very different. And we probably aren't even perceiving the vibe until after we've recorded. This might be us being too groggy to yeah. recognize how stupid we sound. Yeah, exactly. But that's a regret for the morning, Brendan. So. But, uh, but either way, you know, I think, I think, I think, you know, there's that I, I would probably, I, I tend to hone in on, uh, setting details. And so I really like the idea of this cult and just how, how much of a menace it is. And I like the idea of a, 
of an adventure where that's kind of what's going on, where the party and their and I know we talked about this before from a previous film, but in this one it would really work well where some prior history between the party sect and this cult, you know, is led to the present conflict and the players are part of this new generation that have to contend with it. Do you know what I mean? And this I, I, whole movie did lend itself to that kind of like first level character fighting a powerful end game boss vibe. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I like that setup a bit. Uh, I maybe wouldn't make it quite as hopeless because man, the characters drop like flies in this movie. I've seen it run that way though, and it can be a lot of fun. Like uh, like her D and D campaign has been pretty ruthless. This was just this was just a campaign where there was almost a total party kill. Do you know what I mean? That's just almost like, yeah. Um, you know, it just did not go well for the player characters. Oh, you know what else this movie did? Um, it did something that I I'm really proud that I designed in in Tianchang, which is it made buying time an important and heroic act on the part of the lower level characters because yeah. it wasn't just like that that the the GM NPC showed up at just the right moment to save the plot. It was more like we have stalled for time in blood for this whole movie. He's finally ready with the damn flower. <laughs> yep, yep. And that also that flower is a really great artifact that you can draw. I like the flower. I, mean, that's I, I a... think the flower got some some play in our our last discussion when we were doing uh, the first ride with white hair. Yeah, but, you know, it's still cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. It, it gets hard to keep track, so we probably we probably don't want to linger on that detail if if we well, covered it well, already. It's, it's so good that. That we inevitably had to talk about it. Yeah. You know, we, we had to have. I don't remember because I'm old. It's late. <laughs> no, that's that's definitely, uh, you know, probably likely. Uh, were there any other th- things that leapt out at you in terms of game design or campaigns? Uh, well, they at one point they they use uh, mind-altering magic on, on the yeah. new bride and turn her evil. And that's... That's one of those things that's actually kind of like it's been a point of contention in a lot of games, like mind control magic. Mm-hmm. Because what was happening there was clearly that character is an NPC, and so using mind control magic on an NPC is generally okay because you can it leads to fun stuff like the fight that she had with her with her husband and such like. And that's that's neat. It's whenever it's a player character that people like start clucking their tongues at it, where it's like. Because you don't really have a ton of control in a classically ran RPG. In a lot of new RPGs, like, you're kind of a co-GM. But in old RPGs, like, the stuff that you and I like a lot, you really don't have power over anything but what your character tries to do. Like, what they think, what they say, and what they attempt. So, removing even that shred of power just seems like you're holding the, the player's head into the water. Why are they at the table? Well, you know? I guess my feeling on it would be if it's a legitimate failure on the player character's part like she was captured by the bride with white hair and this is what happened it's kind of like if you get attacked by a werewolf and you get lycanthropy do you know what i mean it's like that kind of a thing where yeah she's out of control and maybe there's like a like i don't know like there's a game mechanic you might have some kind of check every day to see if she can break through yeah, the they, mind uh, control they do that with charm person in some yeah. editions of D and it's clones yeah there might um, be something like that going on but then it's just roll dice so you can play your character again, which isn't super satisfying to play. I, I like the imbalances a lot more. I think that, that my game has an advantage there. I mean, we inherited an advantage from uh, Dr. Moran's design in that you can model that there is a struggle and that you're either taking just a penalty or you're role-playing it out depending on how you how you want the character to, to do it. That's neat because it preserves that 
the somewhat more palatable mechanic of just having a negative on you somewhere, and it allows you the option of of being the person to portray that kind of messed up psychology. That's that's fun. That's much but better. That, that could work. I, but I honestly have no issue with if you know with the going the other way where you know you you you, you play the. You you play the character under mind control conditions. Do you know what I mean? Like that's mm. that's I, I can I can I can manage. I say, I've had a lot of success with that, where I'm just like your character is mind controlled and evil now, and the, then the players just like got it. Yeah, and I, they do. Like I don't even have to like come in and be like, oh well, you wouldn't. Nah, ever. Like they just commit. So maybe I just got really good players, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. every group's different. I I I I don't think it's. I, I feel like it's fair game and I feel like, you know, that's, that's, uh, again, if, if the GM just points at you and says you're mind controlled now, you know, maybe that's a, that seems a little suspect. But, I mean, like, but it's always going to be a die roll away with something like Charm Person, you know? Oh, you yeah. failed your save? Well, you're but, evil now. But this one's different. This one you have to get brought to the cult headquarters. They have to get you to drink the mind control substance and do that whole initiation thing. There's a whole... There's a whole series of things that have to happen for it to occur, and during that yeah. time, there might be room for players to to do something about it. I just feel like it, if, you know, you it's just something where you need that kind of stake sometimes. Do you know, you, like, yeah, it would suck to be this character, but that would also be a really thrilling adventure to have one of your player characters abducted by the cult, and then you you know the rest of the party goes in and tries to rescue them. Like, imagine how much more meaningful that adventure is to them. You know, not that you should be doing this every week to people. Just like it, no, any any adventure can get run into the ground if you do it yeah. too much. I think um, the trick with that is making certain that the players have options. Because like, I think you can have like we're imprisoned scenes, or yeah. I'm being tortured scenes, or even like you're you're going to be mind controlled scenes. Mm-hmm. You can have that, but I think that it's important not to put the players in a box that they can't escape from. Well, you just narrate the awful stuff that happens to them. I think that's a trap you want to avoid. You want to give them enough that they can have a fighting chance or that they have different options. There's different kind of approaches they could take. Could they talk their way past a guard? Maybe. Could they fight their way out with, with something they secreted on themselves? I mean, like, oh, is there yeah. a secret exit or something? Well, no, and I, and I don't think you should just sit there and narrate bad things happening to them. That, I think well, that's, that. when I've seen it at its worst, that's what I see. I've been in a couple of games where my character is like tied up or something, and I'm just seriously just sitting at the table while the GM narrates stuff happening around me, and I'm like, "Do I need to be here, dude?" No, I mean, if if the player's not making, if the player's incapable of making any further choices, then the GM can just tell them, "Okay, your character gets tortured for like five hours." I mean, you don't need to like. Right. There's no. There's no point where I'm interacting as a player. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I don't hey. think I don't think you need to narrate every grisly detail like that. Um... And I don't think I, I mean generally I'm I don't I, actually it's funny I was involved in a discussion on Endworld about this about the importance of narration and narrative description and mm-hmm. I don't I mean I'll engage in it sometimes but I don't think I don't think GMs should really narrate the way that a writer narrates a book do you know what I mean like I think uh, I think that it, it's helpful as a GM to have a lot of tricks up your sleeve and I think once in a while. Uh, whipping out something that's kind of poetic like that is fun because it makes it makes something really kind of pop in the player's mind. But I think the important thing is getting your point across as succinctly as you can so they can get to kicking ass. Yeah. I think that's the important part. And also, I just would rather talk in my normal way 
when I'm doing a game. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to. I don't want to put on airs and assume yeah, I, a, an author voice. If that makes sense. See, uh, no, I, yeah. I get that. I've seen GMs who do that, where they're like, and then you behold yeah. the ancient stonework. Okay, yeah. no, yeah. I understand what you're doing there. Yeah. Scale it back, bro. Like I, we're not we're not there yet. You haven't no. earned this. And I feel like that's the kind of GM that's more likely to do the things that you're talking about in those scenes where it's just the GM is narrating these things. But yeah, it's, it, well, it comes from a good place. They have a very vivid image in their head. They're trying yeah. to get it out. But that we're not at the table for your vivid image. You know, that's where the whole uh, trope well, we're, not, of the, we're not there to the, listen to a story. We're, we're, we're there to play our character, right? Yeah, so, and it's hard to make that connection, especially if you're a new GM. But, uh, but you need to develop better habits than that. But I think I think the key though is if a character is mind controlled, to let the player play the mind controlled character under the restrictions of whatever the mind control does. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I got to tell you, some of the best role play I have done is whenever my character is mind controlled because I get to do something different with the same character, yeah. and actually that's that's pretty fun. Yeah, I'm not so wed to the outcome of my character that I can't role-play them through darker moments, even their own demise in the in that particular case. Yeah. Uh, characters die, man. You can't be like, oh, you killed my character. No, and so I think I think that that, uh, you know, in, in that case, the, 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 you're only going to lose control of the character if you don't play the mind control. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. So I, th- I think I think that's that's reasonable. But um, but yeah, I don't know any any other aspects of this movie that we would uh, we would convert into game mechanics or RPG Dude. material of some kind. Oh man, yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, there's there's a lot of fun stuff in this movie, but I don't know how much of it is something I want to like directly convert into like an RPG. You know, I think. Uh, I mean, I have this dream of this would make the I think the Bride with White Hair and the and the source material, the book that it's based on make the perfect rpg i i feel like you could you could replicate everything in these in these movies and in the book and you would have a really great role-playing game or a really great campaign and, and the, so, the trick would be i think the trick would be making certain that the structure of the game allowed stories as good as this like to naturally emerge from the gameplay without forcing them because there's a lot of games that force them even relatively clever games that are like oh this is going to be the thing that we do this is going to be the outcome well there's there's, you don't want that you you want the game itself to kind of naturally evolve into the white bride with white hair you know there's a few ways to do this number one you can just do it in the way of we're just playing in a world that is based on the bride like we're gaming inside that world we're not necessarily gaming the storyline of Lian Ni Chung and Cho Yu Han, right? Like, like that's their story, and they may be figures in this world, but player characters entering this world are members of other sects and various things. Do you know what I mean? So you, it's just it's just inhabiting the same universe. Another another approach would be to bake that kind of melodrama into the system somehow. You could do it that way too. Um, yeah. You know, I've that, really seen a few systems that do that. What, what I consider to be rel- relatively well, uh, I've much maligned Burning Wheel before, but you know, you know, Burning Wheel actually has some really fun and poppy social mechanics. If if you're into like role role playing it and then having mechanical like really specific mechanical support for different kind of strategies you do, yeah, Burning Wheel does that, and it, it I think it does it relatively well. 
It's not my cup of tea. Again, I'm aligned a lot, but I, I, I kind of hand it to it. That was cool. I know there's a Powered by Apocalypse game called Hearts of Ulin that's being developed, and I believe yeah, I, I don't that's... know the, I don't know the mechanics, but they have a they have a there's something in the game called Entanglements, which mm-hmm. uh, sounds based on how it was described in a podcast I heard. It sounds like it would fit this kind of this like a bride with white hair type thing fairly well because it's all about sort of giving the characters these connections to other characters and sometimes there's conflict between an entanglement with your sect and an entanglement with your 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 lover again i, I probably don't understand the mechanics well enough to talk about them so i've played really... a good healthy amount of power by the apocalypse i've played enough to know it's not my bag exactly uh-huh. but I've got to admit, again i've got to hand it to power by the apocalypse I admire some of their design. I really do. And um, I'm probably going to pick up a copy of this game. Well, uh, I, it it no, looks it, pretty looks pretty foxy. I no, and I, and I don't I'm not a I'm not a powered by apocalypse person either. But but this game in particular does appeal to me because uh, my understanding is it's based more on the so this this game is a candy for us, you know. It's it's exactly up our alley. It's built to entice us. Well, but what what's <laughs> interesting about Hearts of Wulin is it's based largely around the 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 chinese drama series so it takes it it, you know like like a lot of games including my own um are based more on the movies or on the books or something do you know what i mean and so you know there i i definitely took inspiration from some of the the drama series but not in the way that this game does this game really seems to that seems to be a much of its focus because those drama series you get a lot more of the melodrama do you know what i mean like you get melodrama in wuxia movies but those drama series, they're like 50 episodes. And so it's, you know, you know, long series like that naturally lend themselves to that kind of melodrama. And Chinese drama series are really good at, at pulling it off and kind of, you know, pulling at your heartstrings and doing all these things over the course of a, of a series. And so uh, I, I am intrigued by the idea of a game that does that. And I think it would work really well for Bride with White Hair. I, I I'd be very curious to see a uh, a bride with white hair scenario with that game. Um, well, the Apocalypse is extremely flexible, so it, someone's going to do it. I hope they I hope they put it on YouTube because I want to watch that too. Well, the the difficulty with bride with white hair would really be the um, the IP issue because it's not, as far as I know, it's not public domain. So, like I. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I took extensive notes reading the book and I did it with the with an eye toward making a gameable version of it. And I, I ended up, uh, you know, not being able to use the notes for that purpose because I realized I, there's I don't you know, I, I can't get the rights to Bride with White Hair. Um, but but I think it would be kind of cool yeah. to put, put maybe put something up for free or something online where you have like the bride. Even if you put money, I mean, like because Lone Wolf Fist is very much uh, Fist of the North Star. Mm-hmm. I mean, like no bones about it. I don't have any claim on that IP whatsoever. But like the game is that in a lot of ways. Oh, oh I get that. Well, you can hey, do you can you do can. this. This is this is the bride with white hair, but not really the bride with white hair. I I understand yeah, you could do just, that, but but this know, is. But I feel like you should actually do the bride with white hair. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that is the how much that name is worth in our little niche of the niche industry. It's know? not. I would just love to have. I just would love to to have. I, I think it would be the best role playing game ever. Do you know what I mean? It, it's. I don't know. Like it's kind of amazing what you can do with that because, like, my Pondsmith 
of all people, got the rights to the Dragon Ball Z RPG for a long time. So, like, I wonder how many of these things you could just ask and be like, like, just I... make the international phone call and be like, hey, um, can I option you so to have residuals for Bride of White I mean... RPG? Here's some, here's some business figures. You're not going to make much, but it's better than nothing? Um, I mean, that's a whole other episode, because I, I do know a little bit about some of that, but it's uh, I think it's very difficult. Uh, and it's certainly above my level of capability. I would never be able to pull off that kind of thing. But I, I think it would be great if somebody could. And I don't, yeah. I don't know what the state is of the book. I don't know if the book is... Like, I don't know if... It, maybe that is public domain. I don't think it is. But if, if the book is, then I guess that would open I mean, up. That's, it's Chinese, right? So it's like international copyright law, which is even more complicated than the already super complicated copyright law yeah. that we have here in the States. But bottom line, I think like a really glossy, nice, bright white hair RPG would be fabulous. You know, it's probably never going to happen. But um, but if, if, if anybody's listening and they're planning on doing it, I got extensive notes on the book. So I, I'd be I happy to... Yeah. He's the sage of at least yeah. three things. No, no, I'm, I just got really RPG, nerdy when I was reading the book. The Kung Fu RPGs and the Bride with White Hair RPG, the theoretical Bride with White Hair RPG. No, what it was, so part of it is I have a really bad memory now. And so when I read books with the intent of using them for later things, I take really extensive notes because I know my memory is not so great. Um, I've got money writing on that whole like bare breast scene thing. I'm going to win on that one. Yeah, you might. You might. I'm bidding against your memory. That's a sure bet, Davis. So, no, that goes without saying. Um, (laughs) But I think think that the the thing with the Bride with White Hair book is, is... I just got really nerdy about it and I was like, I, I need to, I need to, like, I, I was taking notes of like every Kung Fu technique they mentioned and I was like making sure That's I knew what, yeah. And, and, and every, every sect, every character, but in particular, the Kung, the Kung Fu techniques is where I went crazy. Um, and, and so, but what I was amazed by, I was like, I was like, wow, there's a, there's a shitload of Kung Fu techniques in this book. Like, like a huge list of techniques. So it's, uh, you know, which, which, is one of the reasons why, and you see that like most wuxia books have a lot of kung fu techniques, but but just seeing it on the page, I was like, this really would make a great game. Um, so again, you know, I I, I hope I hope so- someday somebody does make one. Um, and by the way, if if you haven't read the book, you can get it free online in translation, and it's definitely worth checking out. Um, that Jeremy did. What is that one of the ones that Jeremy did? No, no, or... he he didn't translate that one. Um, he translated Heroes Shed No Tears, which is a really great read. Ooh. And he, 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 he's translated a number that, of other things. That movie made me shed tears. I yes, remember which, that. Movie. Yep. Which, which means you're not a hero, Joel. You're we, not a we hero. We didn't need anyone to tell us you're, that. We do. Heroes <laughs> are supposed to like take their swords and shed the blood of their enemies for tears, and you got it all wrong. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I took I took a sword and, and poked myself yeah. in it. You you I cried you cr- backwards. You cried like a wuss. It's just a, <laughs> um, but uh, I but might have squirted like a wuss. Okay, that's that's enough of that. <laughs> um, but it, but but anyways, the book is um, Baifa Mono Zuan, which I I I'm very much mispronouncing, and I know, so I apologize, but. Um, but I think it's like the white-haired demoness is what it translates into, or something to that effect. Oh, that's cool, man. Why do we call it that? Well, I don't. I don't. I mean, there are people that could, you know, say what a better name for it. But so, the, so the 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 
the the tra- I think the translation uh, is is either the biography of the white-haired succubus or romance of the white-haired maiden is another way that it gets translated. Um, but uh, but yeah, so um, so I think I think we've reached the end of this episode, and yeah. and so we will we will uh, we will head out for the night. It's after midnight, so we're we're starting to get groggy. And until then, we will talk to you later. Bye.